Hi, everybody. This is Luke Bajarski with Skift Research. Joined here with me today is Jared Ween, Senior Analyst. Today, we're going to be talking about C-Trip and the China online travel market. Hot topic these days. Lots going on. Huge opportunity for... Uh, both operators that are interested in the market and clearly the, the big outbound opportunity for China. So today, we're going to give you a quick recap of a bigger report that we published recently on C-Trip and the China online travel market available to subscribers on research.skift.com. Today, we're going to summarize that report and uh, talk about size of the market, take a look at the opportunity in terms of outbound. We'll look at some travel consumer trends when it comes to the China traveler. We'll talk about distribution and tech. Um, and then Jared's going to talk more about the competitiveness of C-Trip in the context of distribution and, uh, and internet. So thanks for joining us. All right. So just to kick it off, we're going to talk a little bit about China outbound travel just because a lot of the opportunity, a lot of the discussion now based on this particular topic is focused on what the ultimate opportunity is there and what the growth potential is and how all that weaves into both the, uh, the, the online travel market, but also the supplier base in terms of airlines and hotels and how they service this growing market. So how big is the total opportunity specifically for the U.S.? Uh, when it comes to the China traveler. One huge thing that is worth noting here is just the exponential growth that we're seeing from the outbound travel market in China. So we think about the number of international departures that are coming out of China. Just in the last 10 years, we're looking at a threefold increase. Um, in 2008, we're looking just, just north of 40 million outbound departures. Going into 2017, we could be looking at very well over 120 million. So that's a huge growth opportunity, clearly. And those numbers, just given the size of the China market and the growing middle class, will just continue to increase. And how does that, so how does that compare when we look at other markets and the number of international departures that are coming out of the likes of some of the bigger outbound markets? Um, you know, and clearly we got to look at these results here with a little bit of grain of salt. If we think about Germany and the, the, how Germans travel across Europe going international, it could me mean as much as uh, overnight flight to Paris from Berlin, for example. So there's a little bit of a little bit of apples and oranges comparison here when we think about just relative distance and, and travel habits. But again, if we think about international departures, China is is already outpacing a lot of the the big markets that we see in the U.S. For example, 73 million outbound international departures. Germany, 84 million. China, already at close to 120 million departures. And when we think about the U.S. specifically, and we think about who's coming into the U.S. and how China kind of falls into that category for, uh, for opportunities in terms of hotels and how we service the Chinese market, how destinations 
market to the Chinese, China is still relatively, let's say, I, I don't want to say small or small opportunity, but when we think about our neighbors to the north and, and the south, Mexico and Canada specifically make up uh, a dominant portion of the total inbound visitor base to the United States, followed by countries like the UK and Japan. But China is getting up there. And you know, if you think about what that might look like 10 years from now, we, we see China surpassing definitely the UK uh, over the next 10 years in terms of US bound visitors from China. So very exciting stuff. A lot of that clearly has to do with growth and China clocking in at, and clearly this is uh, a lot of this depends on economic cycles and seasonality and uh, how that all plays out in the longer term. If we look at last year, though, from 2015 to 2016, growth rates to the United States, we see that China surpasses uh, in terms of positive growth even is just uh, we see a lot of the countries actually losing out in terms of visitors coming to the U.S., whether or not that has anything anything to do with Trump or uh, just the relative appeal of, of the U.S. as a destination is up for discussion. But nevertheless, we still see China uh, inbound numbers growing at an approximate 15% per year. So very impressive growth there. And we talk about the context in terms of who these travelers are. There's some interesting details around the, just the overall composition of outbound travelers that are traveling outside of China. And Jared, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, typically in, in China, um, the major, vast majority of travel, both domestic and outbound, is leisure. You know, there is corporate travel, and it's large on an absolute basis versus the rest of the world. But the pure kind of leisure traveler is definitely going to be the key driver of growth, both for outbound and leisure. And you've seen uh, domestic leisure has ramped up a lot in the past couple of years. And you're starting to see that happen more on the outbound. And you're seeing it already on a percentage basis. But in terms of actual adoption of, of outbound, you know, right now, there's still you know, sub 10% of the population has a passport. Um, and the emerging middle class keeps growing and then they start by going domestic and then as they travel more domestic and their incomes grow and they get a passport, then they'll go to Asia and then they'll start going to Europe or the US. That's kind of how it's been playing out so far. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You think about other markets, other developing markets like Brazil and the, the, the airlines and the hotel groups that we speak to over there, a lot of the business that's coming to coming both domestically and internationally is coming from the, the corporate business travel side. So just the, the fact that it's really the, the China outbound market is really leisure focused is uh, really a unique opportunity there around hotels and just whether or not it's unique, whether it's an opportunity, just it's, it's a consideration, right? In terms yeah. of how we market to that. To that yeah, I think it's important for, for any hotel or destination that's looking to bring in the China traveler to make sure you focus on kind of the leisure vacation market over corporate, you know, corporate will take care of itself as a hotel. Like if you have, I mean, typically what you're seeing in the corporate side is the companies that can spend enough to send people overseas, they'll typically 
stay at one of the big chains, which actually the brands there tend to be higher scale. So the same brand in China will tend to be nicer than it would be elsewhere. Hmm. And part of that is just like, you know, I stayed in Shanghai and the cost was much lower, just A, on currency and B, it's cheaper. But they'll make it really nice so that when the Chinese guest, say, stays at a certain type of Marriott, when they look to book abroad, they'll take the same brand and assume a similar expectation. Right. Um, so it's kind of this cross-marketing. At, obviously, they're, they're different property owners, but at the brand level and the franchise level, it helps facilitate. So, okay. So maybe, I mean, would you consider the China market, the consumer there, uh, you know, the fact that it's skewed so highly towards leisure in terms of outbound as a share of the total opportunity maybe that's maybe that is a maybe that's not maybe that's a, a negative right i it seems like the you know, leisure travelers perhaps higher cost of acquisition lower average spend than the corporate traveler that may or may not just kind of take care of itself or you have to actually cater to the leisure traveler with these like unique kind of campaigns and you know, uh, brand love and all that stuff that is much more difficult to convince people than just, hey, look, you got a business trip, here's a hotel. Yeah, I think it's definitely more difficult. And if you say like on a one-to-one basis, would you be more profitable on a corporate traveler if you're at a hotel? 100%. But on a massive scale, like if you kind of get it right, you know, you're going to get a lot more leisure travelers in, in volume. And you're also going to get, you know, at the destination level, you know, people, you know, the, the, the outbound U.S., for example, they're going to New York, D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, L.A. Right. But there's a lot of opportunity for the rest of the country to, you know, get that person that comes to New York for the first time to maybe you know, drive up, drive down the coast and maybe go to Florida or, you know, right. go see the rest of the country. And, you know, you're seeing that more in Europe and places like Ireland. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really good point. Just thinking about price sensitivity, leisure versus business travel and what that means for airlines and hotels pitching to that that China traveler. Just kind of be aware that the China travel may still be, China traveler may at least maybe, maybe, maybe not, maybe more price sensitive uh, than other markets. But then again, if you think about who's actually traveling from the China base, right. we're talking about people that with high disposable incomes relative to the national average, right? Right. I mean, as once more outbound becomes more widely, then they're going to be very price sensitive and domestic already you know, is. But that small subset, and again, small, I say on a, on a relative basis percentage, on an absolute basis, it's still very large just because the population is massive. But say that 5% or maybe even less of the population is an outbound leisure traveler, right. they tend to be way, way, way above the typical China income. You know, these are people that maybe you know, work at Sea Trip and they're pulling in 100-something thousand, 200,000, maybe whatever, a year. Right. And where the per capita income in China is, I don't know, maybe 20 grand at this point, right. and the cost of living is very low. So they, these are the people that would typically have gone to Hong Kong, Macau, and now they're starting to go other places. But yeah, as, as once more people, and part of it um, that's changed is the, the, uh, the visa requirements have been relaxed. So there's been reciprocal agreements between the US and China, where it used to be 
you know, a single entry or a one year max. And now, you know, when I went over, it was, a, I have a 10 year visa now. I go to China anytime I want for 10 years. And the same would be true for China to here. And they're trying to do more of that in other countries. So the, I think you'll see more, like still hard to get a visa and expensive yeah. relative, you know, depending, right? Chinese visa to America, to US is expensive. And it's like, so when I was looking to get a visa in China, like the, the cost for US was like quadruple the amount of like a non-US citizen, right? So I mean, there's like if say, I, I want to go to China, it costs me maybe $100, $200 per person, whatever it is. But if say somebody from Thailand wants to go, it could be twenty dollars. So they're but they're starting to a I think I think eventually they'll bring down the cost, and they've already brought down restrictions. So I think you'll see the passport acceptance and visa acceptance go up. Yeah, you know, I mean, price sensitive, not sensitive visas, no no visas. That the the, the point here is that China's the opportunity is huge. Yeah, <laughs> uh, international tourism expenditure out of China ex increased by 11 billion in 2016, uh, reaching over 250 billion total. So it's the world's leading outbound market, according to the UNWTO. So uh, clearly something to pay attention to for global brands and even local brands at the destination level that want to tap into that. And the question is really who, who these people are and how do you tap into that market that really operates on a very different uh, ecosystem when it comes to the internet and commerce and, 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 and travel shopping in general. So that's a big question that we're very interested in at Skift. I think everybody's very interested in just because the worlds are so different, who, who these people are. Um, uh, you know, you think about China and wh what's happening there. There's just the culture clash or the culture differences between the U.S. and just Western worlds is really uh, quite stark. I think uh, in general, in terms of general opinion, it's it's difficult to to get to know these people. But what we're what we're seeing is that actually the people, uh, the China China culture is becoming a lot more a lot better understood as china takes a bigger step bigger role in the global economy i think a lot of the western values a lot of the the the, the, the are are also rubbing off on the china uh consumer uh, one book that we definitely recommend is uh that, that that we're really interested in is a book called china's disruptors published or written by edward c uh, talking about uh, companies like Alibaba, uh, Tencent, and others, companies that really are changing the rules of the game in China, and, and and really talking about less so the companies, but the people behind those companies and kind of their values. I think a a good way to really understand the people and the consumer mindset in China is to understand those values in terms of business business sense, how they approach business, how they approach entrepreneurship. So if you ever get an opportunity, definitely read this book to better understand the China mindset. Um, and, you know, I think the, uh, the the big point here is that you know, the big takeaway from that book and other research and that we've done and the people that we've discussed is that the kind of the typical stereotype of the, the, the kind of the, the Chinese kind of let's say uniformity and kind of complacency or uh, kind of 
you know, the, the kind of communist era China that we're, we're so used to, those barriers are really starting to break down. The people that are now coming online in China, the 400 million plus millennials, the younger generations that grew up in the single, uh, single child policy era are people that are very curious in terms of what's happening in the world. They're very entrepreneurial and empowered and optimistic about their opportunity, economic opportunities. They're very individualistic and proud people, uh, proud of the, the, the of China, but also what they've accomplished so far. So this just a very quick snapshot from our perspective in terms of how you, you might want to start thinking about the opportunity in China. Anything about the demographic trends that influence travel preferences? Uh, the middle class has definitely increased dramatically. Um, you know, Jared, what did you when you were out there in China? What, what did you see, or what, what were some of the takeaways that you got from that trip? Yeah, I mean, I was only in in Shanghai, so it, was a, it skews a bit. But what struck me is how wealthy and westernized parts of Shanghai are. So. You know, there's neighborhoods where you just go down the block and like it's Louis Vuitton and Hermes and the Ferrari dealership. And then like it's this level of wealth. You know, I, and I've been in Hong Kong and Tokyo before. And it, it's, it reminded me more of that than what I would think of China. But then there are other parts of Shanghai where, you know, it's it's way less developed. And like, Shanghai is massive, right? So, you know, from my, from my hotel to sea trip was like an hour and 20 minute drive. So it's it's a massive sprawling city. And it's just... But you're seeing for sure in tier one cities, and then from you know my conversations, the same with Hold in Beijing, um, is that the wealth effect has increased a lot, and you're seeing a lot better quality of life, and a lot. You're also seeing dri that driving domestic travel from people in third and fourth tier cities that are traveling to Shanghai and to Beijing, which down the road also fuels the potential for outbound. But in the meantime. You're definitely getting more leisure travel domestically. Um, obviously, like as a whole, China still has a ways to go because there's plenty of rural parts of the country that are pretty poor, and fourth, fifth tier cities that are very poor. Um, but in like the, the the big powerhouse cities like Shanghai, I mean, you could easily feel, you know, that you were in Hong Kong in parts right. of the city. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and this, you know, we've talked about the kind of the, the generational gap. Um, we got this, uh, the younger generation, the upper middle class, those people that are kind of under 35 is really starting to grow. Um, you know, these, these, are, these are the ultimate, from our research, it sounds like these are the kind of the big consumer spend, these are the big spenders, the, the market that we should really be paying attention to, right? The the millennial generation, those that are under 35, these are the people that are going to be traveling, looking to explore outside of China, um, really trying to get out there both on a business and leisure capacity. I think one of the other stereotypes that we often come across is that the group tour is kind of the, the quintessential way that Chinese tend to travel where you might see, uh, you know, droves of of tour buses with Chinese travelers. And I think maybe, I mean, obviously that's still a big opportunity to service that part of the market, but what we're seeing is a rise in the independent traveler of China. These are people that have 
been abroad before, that know know the drill, they know what the trade-offs are in terms of of being able to build your own trip versus kind of the traditional tour and they're it, it, they're loving it. it you know when we looked at some data from the China Luxury Advisors and Fung Business Intelligence Center the survey great survey that they did um, we saw that the, the 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 share of those that are are traveling part of a group only accounts for about a third and those that are buying travel packages independently are also a third and then you have this other group that um are really kind of paving the way in terms of just going off on their own making it all all my own travel arrangements with no tour guides as approximately 20 percent of the total and we're seeing just like you're saying jared you're seeing that uh trend kind of play out in 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 the tier one cities where you have much more of that independent traveler base in the bigger cities with the lower tier cities still depending more on group travel. So, and that shift continues to, 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 to occur when we look at across the board, but, but also at the consumer level, uh, the individual consumer level, we think about most recent trip and next trip, it looks like the, the, the China traveler is really building an appetite for buying uh, travel independently and then making their own arrangements with with no tour guide, uh, which kind of makes sense uh, if, if those that have been on travel trips before know the uh, know how that goes. With that said, though, travel agents are definitely still relevant in China. Um, think about the way that people are buying trips, buying airfare. Uh, about a quarter of what's happening in the market is still offline. Uh, Jared, maybe you could talk a little bit about what what the landscape looks like in terms of traditional versus online very briefly, and then we can talk a little bit more about that when we get into Sea Trip. Yeah, I mean, it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30, 40% that uh, is booked online. So there's still a, a ways to go. Um, and you know, as you said, there's the your younger demographic that has grown up with the WeChat being used for everything and app, you know, not necessarily the apps that we have in in the US and Europe, where there's like a lot of apps from almost like a super app where WeChat does tons of different things and people just you know go on C trip directly and book. Um, you're seeing more of that being used. Um and part of just it's just kind of a way of life. Like they're always on their phones, people there. You know, in some ways, you know, people, when I was talking to people, they joked, they kind of skipped the PC generation and went straight to mobile. So they're like these, like, I guess the the stereotypical for mobile native, whatever you want to call it, like they've all, the younger generation has used it. And as they get older and have money to travel, you're seeing this adoption to online bookings. And then even, you know, at the corporate and the older level is like, you know, it's people that, especially in the outbound market, like if you're the type of traveler that's going outbound, you know, chances are you're, you know, whether you're just using, you know, China local apps or you travel so much that, you know, you're familiar with like, you know, without using VPNing and whatever to, to, to maybe, you know, yeah. still using Google and Twitter and Facebook when you're outside of China. 
Yeah, you know, and one one interesting thing I heard, I can't remember where, but that whole leapfrog effect in terms of going to mobile and going online versus offline, a lot of that, uh, or just pure adoption in terms of social media in China was actually driven by the one-child policy, where uh, if you think about it, you have uh, whatever billion-plus people that all are single, single uh, children the best way to communicate there is via social media. So that uptick in terms of the, the, just the relative popularity of social media is a direct result of the fact that uh, people are connecting via these virtual networks, online networks, because they have, you know, the just in terms of building that social network is that much more important in the absence of uh, more direct family connections. So that's really interesting. And, you know, uh, the, the, the whole super app, idea of WeChat we'll definitely talk about later on here. Social media again, you know, it, it's it's an important tool and I don't think anybody doubts that. Uh, travel websites and blogs are very popular, particularly among the younger generations. We see the 30 to 39 type category uh, using that resource for trip planning, uh, which is Interesting what we see though is that the, the, where the travel agents and tour guides tend to skew um, towards a bigger share for the older generations. And that's something similar, similar habits that we see in the United States and, and Europe. So we're thinking about the China outbound opportunity. Clearly we wanna know there's some se seasonality considerations that we wanna think about uh, from from data that we collected from a company called Forward Keys that looks at uh, OTA data and flight outbound flights, we see kind of three key peak periods playing out in the outbound market around the Chinese uh, New Year, which they consider the Golden Week. Uh, the, the the Chinese New Year, which, play, which plays out around January, early February, uh, National Day which is usually October 1st through the 7th, and then this, the summer holidays for, uh, for, for through July and August. So what do we, uh, one thing we want to consider is clearly the different preferences and tastes that the China traveler has, uh, what they're looking for when they're going abroad. There's a lot of discussion around that, a lot of questions around that. And from just a general sense, it sounds like, uh, you know, the China friendly type uh, accommodations or at least doing something go a little bit above and beyond to kind of reconnect the China consumer back to their uh, back to what they're used to giving them a little taste of home makes a lot of sense. Uh, just because a lot of those that are coming traveling for the first time may not be speaking English or uh, just in terms of tastes and food, there's a lot of uh, discussion about how you kind of cater to this particular market by uh, bringing in kind of these, uh, not only just amenities and things that they might be used to, but also just the, the, the playing the, the, when we're talking about just digital marketing and the, 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 the platforms that you ultimately channel your message through should also clearly include a lot of the China players that will get a little get more into in terms of the online platforms and how that that all kind of plays into um, when you think about the, uh, the carriers or the 
the platforms that we have here in the US, the the, the big name Priceline and how that all kind of that whole ecosystem plays into it. Nevertheless, we think that clearly consumer preferences are going to evolve as the China consumer uh, kind of gets more accustomed to what's happening in the world, becomes more accustomed to travel, uh, exploration, their tolerance for their willingness to explore outside of the kind of the, the traditional travel experience will continue to grow. And that's something that we've already touched on. So let's get into channels and technology. I think this is the big part of the discussion. Clearly, we talk about the outbound market, but also the, the big opportunity when it comes to the domestic China market. Uh, Jared, you want to talk a little bit about what, what's happening there? Yeah, so as we just you know discussed before, you know, mobile in China, you know, they they skipped the PC world. So it's it's definitely a mobile first world. And any company or destination that really wants to get the Chinese outbound traveler, they need to to optimize a they need to optimize and localize the experience. So you need to get you need to assume that the Chinese consumer is looking on an app or on their device, and you need to Make sure a it's obviously of course in, in Chinese language for the most part, and just kind of being able to do that effectively will help with conversion. Um, and if you look at the slide where it talks about the most widely used ads, apps, um, so WeChat and QQ are actually both owned by Tencent. So WeChat is mobile, QQ is desktop. But again, these are kind of like super apps where you can book the equivalent uh, of an Uber, which is Diddy, or you can use it as a Facebook tool, you can use it for messaging, you can use it to as a Venmo style, you, know, you can use it for play games. I mean, it's just like unlimited types of things that you can do. Um, so that's just the, the, the biggest thing is, you know, you want to be on WeChat in some way, whether it's as a marketing tool, you know, a lot of the Chinese consumers use actually WeChat to pay. Like there's a little barcode that you can scan and it goes to, to WePay and to the WeChat payment function. Um, so that's important. And then you know, turning to the the actual uh, major players in online travel. So C-Trip um, dominates the industry. So it, it, in the past, it was C-Trip and then they were at the higher end of the market and you had Chunar and Elong that kind of played in the lower end space. And you've had, up until a couple of years ago, there was a lot of price competition and it was called coupon wars where Chunar and Elon were trying to take share and they would eat into their own uh, commission rates and hurt margins across all the companies. And so what C-Trip did is they effectively consolidated the entire industry. So they took controlling stakes in both Chunar and Elon. Elon was actually when Expedia controlled it and divested and C-Trip was one of the buyers. Um, but the main thing is that after that, those two acquisitions, there's been price rationalization. So you have commission rates in China for the OTAs that are in the 10 to 15% range. And, you know, if, if, they were, if it was a different country, the, the type of hotels that are there and the control they have of the industry, those rates would be 25%, like Booking.com has in parts of Europe. However, the Chinese government, it's not explicit, but in my conversations when I was there, if you start pushing those commission rates above 15%, they're not going to be happy. And 
you know, and that's that's important in this market where you 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 can be successful, but you don't really want to kind of rock the apple cart, if you will. Um, but they have now they're kind of in that steady ten to fifteen percent uh, commission range. And if you look on the C Trip Financial page, you'll see they're still very early in their in their revenue ramp. Um, Talk about hotels here, right? Oh, for the ten to fifteen, yeah, yes, for, yes, of course. Yeah, airlines is anywhere even lower in China just because the government controlled airlines. The government controls the top three. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, this is a, a good segue for that too. So C-Trip was getting, uh, C-Trip, after they ha- took a stake in Chunar, the uh, the major airlines were basically, the government was pushing for more direct bookings through, but unlike in the US where a hotel books for direct booking, when the Chinese government that owns an airline pushes for direct booking, they pull it off of Chunar and they say, okay, I want 60% bookings coming to the website, coming you know, not to an OTA. And what C-Trip subtly did <laughs> is they took a stake in um, uh, China Eastern in April of 2016. And my conversations when I was over there with a lot of companies, basically China Eastern was the most open business friendly of the government owned airlines. And by taking the stake and having the Chunar stake, they were in a much better position to negotiate with the Chinese government. Right, one big kumbaya. One big kumbaya. And right. you know, my sense was that C Trip knew how to play the game and, you know, had a good relationship with the government. And Chunar was less so, you know, and it, it kind of makes sense thinking about the the brands like C Trip's a much higher and brand and Chunar was kind of the discounter and like hustling to try and take share um and that they didn't have the relationships with the airlines but but anyway that the so the airline commissions are in zero one two percent you know you're probably one or two on like you know public uh, foreign carriers on outbound and also domestic routes um but if you look at the the revenue numbers so you'll notice in 2016 there was this massive jump um a big portion of that is actually the the Chunar uh, acquisition, but even taking that out, you're still in the thirty percent range. Um, and operating margin right now is in the ten-ish percent range. And the way we see it, and we can skip ahead two slides where we have a, a margin uh, trajectory, and we realistically do see that operating margin could hit price line type levels. Um, you have the kind of the du- uh, several things going on. So you have we talked, you know, outbound, which is now only about twenty five percent of profits, and it's a higher margin business than domestic. You have increasing domestic leisure travel, more price rationalization, and then also um, one thing that's an advantage for C trip versus when you look at say a Priceline or an Expedia is it's less competitive for search engine optimization. So where in the US and Europe spend on Google is growing faster than spend than revenue for C trip, it's the opposite, right? So they're spending on on digital channels, but they can over time they can grow revenue faster just because they don't need it as much. Like they'll still they still want Baidu and they still need it, but as the leader in online travel and especially in a higher end market, um 
So it sounds like they all, all are also seen an upside with the Skyscanner acquisition, right? There's been some discussion yeah, around so, yes, that. Yes, they bought they bought Skyscanner as we, you know, we've talked about in our meta search uh, reports, and uh, you know by having uh, more exposure to kind of the, the international meta market, you're getting a little bit of that kind of higher margin marketing dollars, you know, if you will, like kind of that cost per click. And then, you know, they're moving kind of more of a transactional model of partnering C-Trip and Skyscanner. Um, but Skyscanner was already, you know, versus say the Momondo that Priceline bought, like Skyscanner was already nicely profitable, probably 20-ish percent margin, steady business, you know, right. well run. And I mean, you know, we'll probably talk a little bit about this later on, but the Priceline partnership, Clearly, a lot of the inventory on the hotel side for C-Trip is coming from the Priceline, right. uh, the Booking.com bucket. I think 80%, right? Something like some, that. Somewhere around the 80% or so, the non-Chinese yeah. um, inventory on C-Trip is Booking.com. Right. So how does a Skyscanner then is primarily air? Right. 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 I'm just trying to understand how that plays into C-Trip then in terms of their own inventory and how they use Skyscanner as a marketing channel. My guess is what they'll do is they'll probably push more, um, I mean, I guess they push the brand and Sky, Skyscanner for the outbound traveler, but I would I would think you'll probably get more C-Trip uh, clicks through Skyscanner, right? So right. if you're going to, you have like a Chinese language version of Sky, which they have in, you uh, know, you know, we spoke to the the founder of UBB who they bought, uh, Stephen Pang, and he's basically been running the Chinese operations, right? So, but it, I suspect with C-Trip as the owner, when you go to say click flight from Shanghai to New York, I suspect you'll see more C-trip. C-Trip as the top Content. thing. And then right. when you click on C-Trip, you're in their ecosystem to book the hotel. And then there's other like cross-selling that they do in China, right. like travel insurance. That, right. So uh, the direct revenue coming from the, the Skyscanner, but then also other kind of cross-marketing right. that they're doing for the, the C-Trip Which brand. Which I also suspect so. another thing that may happen is that competition on Skyscanner may go up. So if C-Trip is bidding effectively on its own platform, you know, they still, I mean, they still want revenue, so they can't get too aggressive, or they'll just lose all of the other uh, clicks. But at the margin, I would think you'd probably get higher CPCs on Skyscanner right. going forward with C Trip more aggressively. And this is, yeah, that's just speculation. They didn't say that. I don't know right, for right, sure. Right. That. Interesting. Um, yeah, but yeah, I think margins on its way up, which is important. And then, um, so if you just look at the revenue by product. You know, right now, you know, transportation you know, for, for them has always been a large part of the business and it still will, but accommodations uh, with outbound especially should go up just because, you know, local hotels are very cheap. So you're talking about maybe a, a nice hotel is $100, $150 a night U.S., you know, five star, really nice hotel is two two fifty versus New York City, that could be $1,000. But the people that are spending outbound, the differential in price on a percentage basis for air versus hotels is much higher on hotels. Um, and the commission rate itself is much higher. So you should see that kind of skew. Um, 
What about gross bookings then? I mean, when you think about the transport segment of Sea Trip, then and we think about the commissions that they're making off of the uh, off of air versus hotels. The gross in terms of gross bookings, air by far is right much much larger right. than the accommodation space. Yeah, gotcha. by bookings for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, just turning to the M&A page, kind of, we talked about Skyscanner and, and Shunar. Um, so we talked about a lot of these, but I mean, one thing is the company is very acquisitive. Um, and also they take smaller stakes and kind of key players in the ecosystem, not just in China, but in like neighboring markets. So you have them, you know, as a 10% stake and make my trip, which is like the sea trip of India. Um, and then they have a stake, smaller stake, but a stake nonetheless in uh, in um, ly.com, which is now the leading independent OTA, um, which is much smaller than, than C-Trip, but they still have a stake. And then they've bought a, a meaningful stake in Tujia, which is like the Airbnb of China. Um, and, you know, they, they continue to do these type of things where they're either consolidating or getting knowledge of an industry or looking to expand in new markets. And then finally, so if we turn to the, uh, so the bat companies, you know, these are China's where you have Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. And these are like, you know, so I guess, yeah, Baidu is Google, Alibaba is Amazon, Tencent is Facebook. It's kind of the, you know, they're not exact things, but that's kind of the comparison. They, and they like by far dominate you know, the tech industry. And there's a lot of kind of this cross ownership of assets where sometimes they compete, sometimes they partner. Um, but, you know, these three entities um, have their hands all over the uh, the travel ecosystem. So if you look at uh, the slide where you have Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, you can see Baidu itself actually has you know, almost 25% share of C-Trip. So C-Trip still does advertise there like you would on Google. It's not it's not the same type of driver like it is here. Um, but, and they have, you know, have a meta channel that has become basically almost linked to C-Trip. And then for uh, Tencent, which is primarily for travel for this WeChat, um, and there's not really like, they're not becoming an OTA, um, but they do invest, you know, they've invested in other OTAs, like smaller ones like ly.com with C-Trip and they're getting more advertising revenue. So you could see some transactional, but it's, I think you kind of see more of that lucrative ad stream because everyone wants to be advertising on WeChat. And then finally, um, Alibaba has been interesting. So their model is kind of these storefronts and it was alley trip and then they changed it to fliggy which was kind of trying to be playful like flying pig which actually was very controversial because they upset some like muslim countries um which you know i don't think they were expecting i think they were just one of these things where they were being silly and um i think it you know the controversy died out a little so people don't really talk about it as much but i'm sure it can help on like those markets <laughs> those put their bookings um, but they're trying to like focus on the young millennial type traveler that would be on Alibaba doing other things. Um, and then, you know, just they're not on the slides, but it's worth mentioning. So Meituan, Dianping 
is like this up and coming company. Well, up and coming, it's probably worth twenty billion now, but it's um it basically combined like a Groupon model, um and like a review type model, and they're they've been focusing on kind of way way bottom of the market compared to like you know below Chuna or well below Sea Trip on the hotels, and typically you'd book a room. Um, it's like online offline it's called. So you book a room on Meituan and like almost like a Groupon type thing, except you just a call, right? So you book the room, you get the coupon and then you call the hotel. Maybe it's like a 60, 70% discount. And you say, Hey, I got this on Meituan. I want to book. Can I stay this? And they'd be like, no. And so it's a whole hassle, but it's very cheap. And they, there's been rumors that C-Trip could buy them to just kind of prevent them from moving upscale which is possible, like it's a big company and there's stake in it. Uh, I forget who has a larger stake, if it was Tencent or one, one of the big three or two of the big three have stakes in it. So there's resources to move upscale. Um, but C-Trip could do kind of a defensive acquisition. And I think C-Trip actually has a stake too, if I'm not mistaken. They might not, but I lose track of all their small investments. Um, but I could easily see them taking a stake in Meituan to prevent kind of a new OTA from trying to move up and also giving them more um, on the lower end and as they move to like third, fourth tier cities, which they said is a big growth driver. Yeah, no. So, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So clearly there's uh, I mean, the, the, the ecosystem in China is vastly different than what we see in the United States. And not surprisingly, just given the way that the you know the the government has kind of closed off the market to foreign competitors letting that ecosystem kind of mature on its own building their own brands which has been great so what does that mean for um you know the 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 local hotel in DC or the ch- even the, the chain hotel that wants to break into this market uh i think it's a, a that those companies that are already plugged into, um, you know, the usual suspects, Priceline, Expedia, TripAdvisor, is it going to be, oh, wow, the China market, it's, you know, it's a great opportunity, but is it really worth all the hassle in terms of connecting to all these different platforms? So uh, just thinking about some tricks and tips in terms of what we should be thinking about as this kind of these two universes collide, right? And one thing that kind of continues to pop up from our end in terms of the coverage that we do on skiff.com and some of the things that continue to play out is uh, the role of payments and how that could potentially be a way in for the likes of airlines that want to cater to the Chinese market but uh, and are looking for avenues uh, WeChat, you know, again, we keep talking about WeChat and how I think it's what 80% of the China, China online yeah. consumer is on WeChat. Everybody's using WeChat and paying for things online through the app. So, uh, offering those payment systems, the, the, those compatible payment options, uh, I think could be an important part of the whole equation in terms of connecting to that China universe. Um, and, you know, who knows, maybe we'll see companies like PayPal and like Braintree offering integrations into these new payment systems. As, as far as I'm aware, they, they don't, Braintree currently doesn't offer connectivity to WeChat, but 
You know, we can see alternatives where local vendors in the United States could easily plug into the WeChat uh, feature as a payment option for the China market. So just one thing to think about. Um, so let's talk a little bit about more about the, you know, the presence of non-Chinese brands in China and what, you know, how uh, suppliers should think about what what the opportunities are there in connectivity. Um and Jared, what do you what do you think here? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest lesson, kind of looking at the two paths Expedia and Priceline took, that are very different paths, is it's a really big opportunity, but it's a very very unique market, like more so than any other part of the world where there's a meaningful opportunity. And Expedia, you know, they had Elon, Elon, and they were basically managing themselves at the corporate level, and it fails. Like you know, it wasn't a terrible company, but it wasn't making money, and they sold it and they moved on. Um, you know, they still have some sort of loose partnership agreement where there's some business there and they have like their, you know, like their brands are still in China, but essentially it didn't work. Now for, for Priceline, instead of trying to just push directly in, they said, okay, you know, we have a Goda in the rest of Asia, which is a successful brand, you know, not necessarily focused on like mass China outbound, but a very good like Asian OTA, you know, Japan and uh, Thailand and basically the rest of Asia. And what they did is they've said, okay, let's partner with C-Trip. And they also took a, a very large stake in it, um, which has been lucrative based on how much market cap C-Trip, C-Trip has grown since they've taken the stake. But they essentially own close to 10% of C-Trip. And C-Trip at a $28 billion valuation, they now own $3 billion or so worth With of- the potential to buy in at up to- uh, I think it's 15-ish percent, yeah. Um, so, and then on top of that, they basically, they share the inventory as we talked about before. So, booking.com provides the, the uh, outbound inventory. The C-Trip consumer goes to click, they book, they see at the very end, powered by uh, booking.com. So, booking.com, then, you know, it gets branding, which is important. It shares the revenue and the commission and my speculation is is that on a 10 percent commission it's not evenly split split where booking.com is probably taking nine or ten percent of a 15 percent commission um because ctrip needed booking.com to ramp this quickly and they did and it was smart on both sides um so i just think the big lesson is is for any distributor to try and compete directly with a C trip, it doesn't necessarily make sense as you're not familiar with the market. You, know, you definitely could see companies like, you know, if Baidu or Alibaba or Tencent really wanted to do it, they would have the capability and the knowledge to do it. They probably would just buy C trip or buy to do it. Um, and then TripAdvisor also, they were a little bit more um, focused on kind of multiple parts of the travel journey. And they even had, uh, a localized like China, like not their not their brand, but they had a stake in another kind of OTA meta brand, and they sold that. So now they really just focus on uh, the high end China outbound market. That's it. That's all they do. They do it well. Um, but you know, I don't know how, how much high their conversions are, but in terms of actually like traffic and targeting, like that's the only consumer they focus on. It's very small compared to like what Booking.com is doing. Um, but it's smart, like they're going in kind of their circle of confidence and they're staying local. Um, but if they really want to like have it be a meaningful driver of growth, they probably need to partner and do what uh, Booking.com did, you know, find more local 
partners, you know, whether that's Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, someone smaller, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. And I wonder how the, the content portion of the equation kind of plays out when you're thinking about the, the rise of the, the, the so-called independent traveler and the types of content that they tap into when it comes to looking and booking uh, travel and how Trip, TripAdvisor kind of, kind of use that to their advantage, uh, particularly think about just, you know, translated content, not only as a uh, way to engage the customer, but also in terms of just uh, keeping them within the ecosystem as a kind of a platform-based uh, app opportunity there that offers not only tours and activities, but also hotel and air. But I guess Sea Trip does all that stuff too, right? So it's Sea right. Trip does everything from you know, tours and activities to to airlines, right? So right, and the experiment, like right. on the, I don't speak Chinese, so I can't really, I don't know the exact ones, but on their like local app, the Chinese app, they have like, you know, they call it the baby tiger program where they experiment with different things and, you know, certain bus things were that and they'll do different types of like little like pink and green little boxes in the bottom of the app where they'll experiment with different things but they have all of the main you know air rail car hotel at least for uh, the domestic market for the domestic right for the market. domestic for like right. the domestic like they're right and that's the thing like outbound is very important as a growth driver but for c trip it's only 20 percent of the business probably right um but they have a whole company-wide initiative to speak English. You know, when I spoke to the CFO, it was her first English uh, language interview. And I was like, your English is, is, is fantastic. And like, that's a big push. They've been like, you know, they're trying to make it. They were actually saying that Trip now is a dual language company. So they're like, it's Chinese and English is now an official language. So. Right. About TripAdvisor. <laughs> you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the market about trip and you know potential acquisition as a potential acquisition target and there've just there've been some uh, you know names floating around about who could potentially buy buy trip advisor you know we saw that play out with the likes of skyscanner and a deal that moved very quickly i think it would it was like a uh, we talked to the leadership over at, at skyscanner i think they said like from like a them approaching them to the actual sale was like two weeks or something like something that. Something quick, I don't know. Something quick before very, they knew it. They yeah. were they were you know, running running on seat powered by seat trip. So, you know, I'm wondering what the opportunity there is for a potential trip advisor acquisition by one of the bigger China players. And you know, yeah. it's always speculative at this point. Anybody's game or whether or not trip is even in a position, but something to consider. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the Chinese players are possible. I would, st I would still say the rice price price line makes the most sense. Sure. Um, owning like a key distribution channel, so you get the value, you know, on top of the brand, but like you know, the, the whole value of paying yourself, where the Chinese brands don't really market on TripAdvisor, so you're not removing a marketing channel. Um, but if they want to move into travel, it's a great international brand so it's certainly a possibility for sure right and we'll really be talking about some some uh you know some 
insider competition there, right? We have C Trip owned TripAdvisor with a Priceline run inventory and a <laughs> minority stake in C Trip and uh, the ten cent and dipping into there at some point potentially. You know, let's see what the, let's see what happens in the little intricate web. Um, so some of the takeaways here are, you know, clearly China market is growing very, very fast. Uh, as that happens, the China consumer is going to be evolving in terms of their tastes and preferences for destinations and the, the way that they want to be treated when they get to where they're going. When it comes to actually connecting to the China outbound traveler, you know, as Jared mentioned, you know, we think that leveraging local partners and platforms is clearly the way to go. Uh, going at the China market alone is uh, probably inadvisable at this point in time. But, uh, you know, let's see how things kind of develop. Um, and just kind of going back to what we we're talking about as the China consumer tastes evolve, offering unique experiences with a touch of home for the China traveler is kind of the... Uh, the, the way that people are doing it these days. Uh, so a little little tip there. And then get in early. Uh, there's still an opportunity there. Uh, it's it's going to continue to, to, to grow and look for unique ways to kind of con connect to the consumer. So what do you think? Any, any final words? I guess words? the one last thing that we, I guess we forgot to mention is the South, is the, uh, South Korea example. So, you know, South Korea was a, like, seeing 50, 60% growth per year in outbound travel from China. And then the THAAD missile controversy happened and China has decided to ban organized group travel, um, which by in itself might not necessarily cause the decline, but the fact that the government was basically saying, don't go there, you know, legally don't have organized group travel, but then also pushing not to go. You saw like cruise ships refusing to go and travel to South Korea dropped 60, 70%. So right. it's one of these things where it's a huge market and outbound as a, as a whole will do extremely well. Uh, but if you're like a DMO or someone that's like, uh, you know, trying to focus on this, it's important as you're spending to make sure that's kind of variable spending where right. if something happens, you can easily pull back on like, you know, because marketing, of course, you could pull back. Um, but if you start like, if you start going down too much, like, China unique infrastructure and really targeting it or, you know, long tail TV campaigns that you have forward contracts. There's a lot of risk if something goes wrong, um, but the opportunity is very big. So right. it's something to watch. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. What is the you know return on investment on the China market ultimately? And that's that's the big question. Right. It's a big uh, it's a big carrot. Uh, but what's the payoff? <laughs> right. That's a perfect way to end. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us.